Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, some school boards in Ontario will see students slowly returning as of today. We'll talk with Manny Figueroa, who's the Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education, to get an update. How is Aaron O'Toole, the new leader of the Conservative Party, putting his own stamp on the party? We'll explain. And a poll suggests that almost half of Canadians support what the government has done to get people off the CERB program. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get into uh, what all families are looking at right now, and that's getting back to school. Some of the school boards in Ontario are going to see students return slowly today and later this week. Uh, many have decided to stagger the uh, the opening of the schools for obvious reasons. Uh, by the way, we are, are attempted to check in with the Thames Valley uh, Board in London, and uh, they have didn't, well, they couldn't join us today, so we're going to do that section tomorrow and find out what's happening in that school district. Uh, but I do want to bring Manny Figueroa into the conversation. Manny is the director of education for the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, and we've had a number of discussions about how the Hamilton Board is trying to roll this out in uh, an effort to try to make this as seamless as possible and as easy as possible for teachers, parents, and uh, for their students as well. Uh, Manny, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today on a very busy day. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me again. All right. Uh, so, if we've had in past discussions now, this is uh, this is kind of flying blind to a certain extent because we've never dealt with COVID or pandemics. Uh, this is a different scenario. Uh, what are kids going to see? Uh, let's talk about elementary school first. Though. What are they going to see when they do go into the classrooms over the next couple of days? Yeah, Bill. What they're going to see, as you know, we have a staggered, delayed start. So um, today and tomorrow, it's all about focusing our staff transitions because, as you know. Um, we had about almost 20% of parents choose uh, in elementary virtual school, so we had to undergo a sort of massive uh, school reorganization and staffing and to give staff the time to transition, as they just found out Friday last week, in terms of whether their assignment would be changing. And in addition, what students are going to see, and staff when they walk into schools, um, they're going to see a, a big difference. They're going to first see, before they can even come into school, around having to do the self-screening. So before students can even come in or staff, um, we've all had to fill out um, an attestation that we sign off saying that these are the symptoms of COVID and, and if we will be doing uh, self-screening every day. And, and, and we're going to have to hold everyone accountable to that because that's going to be key. So what will be happening today, if we still haven't received that from some of the parents who've chosen in person, uh, the reach-outs are happening. We know there are parents who will be calling in schools today um, who might need some assistance with that. Then when they do walk in, they're going to see signage everywhere. They're going to see signage around cough etiquette. They're going to be seeing signage around mask wearing, and they're going to be seeing signage around physical distancing. And probably the most important one uh, that we're reminded about with Trump Public Health is around hand washing. So they're going to see hand sanitizer stations and hand sanitizing in each classroom. And when they see the classrooms, they are going to see desks in row in rows. So you know, typically what we've been promoting and our great educators understand that um, uh, learning and teaching is social. So we, we endorse and support collaborative learning in groups. You're not going to see that. So you are going to see kids in elementary in um, desks approximately one meter apart. Um, any feedback from teachers and, and parents about that? Because that obviously is not according to the standards that we as adults have been adhering to over the last few months. Yeah, you know, we a, a range of emotions. But I think at the end of the day, everyone's holding everyone accountable for the safety measures. We know it's not ideal, um, but we safety has to be number one. And as we work closely with public health, they remind us around 
the layered approach, right? The layered approach of hand washing being number one, uh, physical distancing number two, and the mask wearing as well. And and you, they'll see students will also see teachers with masks, but also with with um, you know visors, uh, shields in front of their faces too. So that will be new. And this week to support the transitions, um, Thursday and Friday we'll have our earliest. Learners, JK students coming in first to do transitions with families. Uh, first time they'll be in building our school buildings if they haven't been in daycares already. And also students with special needs uh, who um, to transition back and establish those routines. We know every year we look forward to seeing our kids establishing those new routines. But this year there's a slew of new routines. So we want to make sure that we do it right with our earliest learners and students who, who have special needs who might require that little that, that one-to-one attention to practice those routines before the other students return next week. What about the physical appearance of the school itself when they walk in the front door? You mentioned that there's, obviously there's going to be a screening. I, I assume there's going to be a, a sanitizer there. Uh, but as we found out when we were finally allowed to go back into stores uh, after they shut down, uh, it was a much different environment. There were arrows. You can go this way, uh, uh, even in hallways. You know, stay to the right if you're going that way. Stay to the other side if you're going the other way. And don't intermingle. In other words, it was an attempt to, to basically, and even leave lines on the floor, to, you know, that, that were supposed to be the, the required distance apart. So that the kids would obviously be aware of the uh, the social distancing. Have you had to go to that extent? Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, so when you when you see the front of the school when you enter, and there will be a sign reminding people of, of the self screening, reminding people you have any of these, of these symptoms, don't enter. You will see on the floor uh, decals that show the reminder of of um, uh, physical distancing to to stay apart. So we have gone to that extreme. And what I said last week when we had the media inside one of our schools. I said the difference is maybe in grocery stores to us. Um, we've always socialized our students around walking on the right-hand side of of, um, of the hallway. But one difference you will see, especially um, in our secondary schools, when students return or when they have lockers, we're asking our students not to use their lockers, that they'll be carrying their backpacks with them to class because we know with lockers it's very difficult to keep that distancing. So that will be a new routine, and they'll also see um, – when they go into washrooms, uh, stalls or urinals that will be marked to use or not to use. And uh, we have hydration stations they can continue to use, but if some schools have a combination of the old fountains and hydration stations, the old fountains will be bagged over for people not to use and to continue to use the hydration stations only. So they're going to see that difference in the hallway as well. Let's talk about busing, which, which is a concern, by the way, every year. And if you're a new uh, parent with kids just starting into school, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a traumatic situation for everybody involved. And, and there's a number of reasons why it's always t- difficult, as you and I have talked about in past years, Manny. Uh, sometimes you're not even sure who's going to be available to drive buses. You're not sure if the numbers are going to be there. There's always a reworking of routing, et cetera. Uh, so it, it's, it's a tense situation to begin with. I would imagine COVID has probably made it even more tense. Yeah, we've... You're right. Every year, as you know, uh, Bill, we've been on, I've been on a show about um, our consortium looking for efficiencies. We're always usually around 20 to 25 permanent drivers short, and we have spares filling in. And uh, we were looking at a bell time study last year, which we decided to hold off until September 2021, changing bell time ranges so you know uh, one driver can do more runs and routes and to address the shortfall. Um, but we are concerned, and we'll know more uh, by midweek around um, if there are going to be bus drivers who may not be returning because of COVID-19, because uh, if, if, um, 
they're immunocompromised. So uh, we know we're, we're, we're going to be getting that information by midweek. But in addition, the board is also then removing students who are eligible students who are taking remote dr- uh, school. So in our elementary, we have about 6,600 students who've chosen remote uh, learning full-time. Now, not all of them are, are transportation students but we'll be removing those students. And uh, we had a survey out last week just asking parents who are choosing in person, who, um, who are choosing not to have transportation. In other words, uh, I want my child to go to school, but I don't want my child to go on a bus, so therefore I'll be taking my own child or finding my own means. So we're removing that data as well because um, we need the data on both ends, how many drivers are returning or not, and how many students who are eligible will be will be requesting uh, transportation so there'll be further communication uh, by the end of this week because for our board um, we know that by by monday students in elementary uh, begin to return uh, sort of uh, full time Um, group a comes monday then group b comes tuesday but then everyone comes wednesday so this week will be a critical uh, time for us to um, deal with transportation and have that data sorted out there are times in, in both elementary and secondary schools, of course, where students gather in, in large numbers. Uh, elementary school, it's it's recess, uh, you know, the times to, to get out there and get some fresh air, et cetera. And in high school, I, I guess you'd call the cafeteria time, the lunchtime, uh, where there's always large gatherings. What accommodations have you made for those? Yeah, so for the ministry guidance document was clear. For elementary, as we all know, we're, we're so used to typically school-wide recess breaks where everyone yeah. goes outside at the same time. Well, that can't happen um, now. So we're going to have uh, recess breaks staggered. So, um, you know, schools are working out, you know, either by grade, but most of them by division, you know, kindergartens at grades one to three, four to six and seven, eight. So in smaller groups. So you have more space outside to, uh, to spread out. And in secondary, we're one of those 24 boards who is in that hybrid adaptive model. So um, we're going to be having... Um, Next week, on month, uh, this week, Thursday and Friday, everyone go online to their orientation for their four classes. And then Monday and Tuesday, our grade 9s and 10s are going to come in first uh, while the first rotation begins and our 11s and 12s will be online. But then by Wednesday, everyone's going to be coming their cohort day. As in secondary, it'll be half the students in our schools. But our cafeterias, uh, you know, will not be, our cafeterias won't be serving food like we have in the past because of the physical distancing and trying to maintain students in their cohorts as much as possible. So, so that's going to change. And so most students, you know, will either um, bring a lunch, and in certain areas we know that uh, they'll, they'll, once they finish their morning, they'll be going home for uh, their afternoon classes. Or if they need transportation at the end of the day, we're going to be providing a study hall model. So we'll be gathering the data of how many students actually need to stay because, A, they need Internet access, or uh, they can't find transportation the day, and we will provide it at the end of the day. So we're going to be looking at our spaces in schools where they can actually um, have, uh, in groups, have a place to learn. But I think what's going to be key here, even as everyone has to you know, wear a mask, is that we're going to try to use as much of, of outdoor space as much as possible, uh, because this is going to be a new norm wearing a mask uh, full-time. Um, we toured the schools last week with uh, public health, our public health partners, and McMaster Children's Sick Kids to get some advice as well as we toured uh, the building. Um, and we'll be have more information coming again this week uh, with public health as well, because as there, where we found out, so the good news is there'll be about 23 public health nurses 
for the area of Hamilton to help um, both boards, all boards, the four of them, uh, the French as well, deal with any kind of illness or any kind of breakout process um, uh, if it occurs in one of our schools. I want to get a little deeper into the mental health aspect, and I'm glad to hear about that as far as the COVID and looking for symptoms and things of this nature. Uh, but we've talked about the stress level on, on students, on, on teachers, and certainly on parents, but let's let's talk about the people in that environment, both the students and teachers. Uh, what accommodations have you made for, for people that are going to have, that stress is going to have a, a negative impact on them? I mean, there's a very deep concern, and I think a legitimate concern, about all of these changes and, and the circumstance in which everything is happening now is is awfully stressful, and there are mental health issues related to that. Yeah, I think the first thing, uh, Bill, I'm glad you raised that. Uh, our, uh, for our staff, uh, foremost, we, um, about three, four weeks ago, our Human Resource Department put out a notification to let people know, hey, if there are some accommodations you might need beyond these because uh, you might have might be immune compromised or there's a family situation, please let us know. And we were able to accommodate those people. And because there's full-time remote learning, um, uh, staff could then have that accommodation to teach full-time if they couldn't, um, for serious health reasons, um, not come into the physical space. And that also is another reason why um, we've also transitioned and not said, okay, today's the first day, everyone come back full-time. We know from a, people are anxious, and we have to become give people time to transition into new routines. And it would be unfair to ask our staff who are just finding out on Friday if their assignment has changed or not, Am I in the same grade? Am I in the same school? Or am I going remote to say, well, here you go Friday and be ready for your kids Tuesday? We know we have to give our staff time as well. And also the ministry required those PA day trainings, um, training days last week as well to, to, to give our staff time. In addition, this week, uh, really important that Thursday and Friday we've identified uh, that there are, there are families and students with special needs or uh, mental health issues and challenges and, and anxiety issues that um, having personalized visits on Thursday and Friday, having students come in uh, slowly, meet the teachers, see the new classroom environment, ask questions before everyone comes in on Monday and Tuesday. And that's why we also did that for the JK orientation. We, we, we said if we can, you know, how do, sometimes you have to go slow to go, to go uh, faster, but uh, safety is something we can't compromise. And, uh, you know, we're thankful that the Board of Trustees realized that we need a bit more time and the ministry approved our delayed staggered start because um, there was a lot to accomplish uh, once the ministry made the decision at the end of July. Boards basically have five weeks to execute the plan that was directed. And when about two weeks into it, two weeks before startup, we said uh, we were measuring and monitoring our status and we knew we just needed more time and we weren't willing to compromise safety uh, and when you come uh, and understanding that there's mental health concerns and anxiety that people are feeling with that we had to address it got about a minute left but there's one other issue i wanted to ask you but based on the previous conversations you and i have had on this program manny and i know that you and the staff have put a lot of work into this to, to try to put this plan together but i get the sense that this is a malleable plan as i mean as you get feedback from teachers and, and families and students and everything else if there's a shortcoming you you want to address it this is not carved in stone yeah well, i've been saying to everyone um the most important thing I said as a leader at this point in time is uh, knowing your people and relationships. More than never as a leader, uh, connect with people as much as possible. Number two, be agile. We're going to have to be agile, and sometimes that's frustrating for people, but as new information emerges or data emerges, how do we 
pivot and, and make a different decision based on any new information. Uh, and, and number three, listen to your students. There are, there are customers, there are clients. What are you observing? What are you seeing? Hence why we built in our plan that um, um, there's October 13th, I think January 4th and March 22nd, that there's three intervals throughout the year that if parents are potentially making a shift and saying, hmm, I thought this would be the best environment for my child, full-time remote, not working, can I transition into that? We say, yes, come um, October 13th, we'll make that transition at that time, and we'll also look at transportation at the time. So we created these three intervals throughout the year. Um, you know, um, Normally, we would just make that transition a day, but there's so many other factors we have to factor in, like uh, cohorting um, and the space in the school. So we, we want to make sure we have the time to build in if there's, uh, if there's shifts in any of our cohorts. So the agility is going to be key, and that's why in our plan we, we built in those three intervals. Uh, more to come on this. I guess the best thing we can say to wrap this up is good luck, Manny, uh, and uh, with everybody involved. It's it's a traumatic day to be. First day of school always is, but I mean, with all these extras uh, because of COVID, uh, we'll see how this works out. I'm sure we'll talk more about this in the days ahead. Thanks for the time today. Oh, thank you, Bill. We're excited to have our kids back. It's been a long time since having students in our buildings, and, and, and it is exciting to, to have students. Sure is. So thank you. Sure is. Manny Figueroa, the Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, and in case you missed it at the beginning of our conversation, uh, we attempted to reach out to the Thames Valley Board in London. Uh, they were unavailable today, but we're going to talk with them tomorrow about their plan and how it's going in the first couple of days of school. Look forward to that conversation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Aaron O'Toole has been the uh, leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, or the Conservative Party, I'm sorry, of uh, Canada for a couple of weeks now after the uh, marathon session. It was well into the morning before they finally made a decision on the leader and the acceptance speech, of course, uh, well, there weren't a whole lot of people there, especially because of COVID and everybody else had gone to bed. But slowly but surely, uh, he's starting to put his mark on uh, his Conservative Party now and trying to tell Canadians exactly what he sees as the priorities for this country. Here he is. My priority is Canadians. I, I'm very worried about the post-Serb environment. Uh, we have high levels of unemployment. A lot of employers, because the Liberals got the wage subsidy slow and a bit wrong at first, a lot of them let jobs go. So we didn't save as many jobs as we, we could have in, in the midst of COVID. So I'm worried as Serb ends, are the mom and dad in the home going to have a job to provide for their family? When the mortgage assistance from the banks is ending, are we going to see more people at risk? Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, the official leader, of course, of the opposition now when they get back to work in a couple of weeks on Parliament Hill. Uh, John Best writes about this in the Bay Observer, uh, O'Toole putting a personal stamp on the Conservative Party. Uh, John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. John, thanks for the time. Good to have you back with us today. Nice to be with you, Bill. Uh, right off the bat, I think he, Mr. O'Toole has gone out of his way to make sure that, uh, hey, I am not Andrew Shear. He definitely has. Uh, in fact, uh, I think he's gone beyond that. Um, even in the era of, uh, uh, of, of the previous government, there was always this, even when they would deny that they had social conservative agendas, Harper was constantly batting away these allegations that, you know, there was a secret agenda, they were going to reintroduce uh, anti-abortion legislation, that kind of thing. And uh, unfortunately, his his acceptance speech was at 2 in the morning on a Monday, but uh, he he just swatted away all of that uh, very quickly. He just ticked off, you know, I'm I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-immigration, 
just he just rattled off the whole litany of things that he was likely to be accused of, and um, and then he again uh, in his subsequent remarks he's he's been very clear on that. I think he's decided that uh, he simply uh, if the conservative wing of the party wanted to vote for him. Uh, thank you very much, but if you think you're going to be driving the bus, uh, that's not happening. Which I think was an important distinction, and whatever your politics is right now, I think one of the things that frustrated a lot of Canadians, and enough of us, we pundits, I think, wrote about this and commented about this, was, was Shear's equivocation on all of these quote-unquote controversial issues. Uh, he would dance around that without really giving an opinion or stating it. Uh, O'Toole came right out in front, as you said, and said, look, just, you know, for the record, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-gay marriage, I'm pro-immigration. Uh, so, you know, those boxes that you guys checked and figured that's what you're going to throw at any conservative leader aren't going to apply here. And that it, it takes a couple of arrows out of the quiver of the opposition, doesn't it? Or the, of the governing party in this case. Well, it does. It, it erases the blackboard completely and... Um you know, and, and, and I, I think the other quality that, again, uh, you know, so many people haven't seen him, but, uh, he's got a, uh, he's actually quite a good communicator. He's, uh, he's got a very genuine delivery. Uh, he's articulate. He's smart. Uh, he comes across as, uh, kind of like everybody's next door neighbor. And, um, I think that's going to stand him in good stead. Just the fact that, uh, that he has, he appears to have authenticity. At a time when, uh, you know, a lot of people look at, at, uh, Justin Trudeau and say, you know, nice guy, uh, you know, hard in the right place, but there's something a bit inauthentic about him. He just seems so mannered in, in his speeches that, uh, that could be an interesting contrast as well. Well, the other contrast, uh, and again, to go back to the Shear era, uh, Andrew Shear, for all of his talents, uh, and, you know, and the, he was the leader for a while, never looked comfortable in front of a microphone, never looked comfortable speaking in the commons. He always had that body language that was going for him that says, I'm, I'm, I'm not really comfortable doing this, I'm nervous. Uh, he would equivocate on some issues, certainly, but I mean the way he even presented himself. Uh, and, and not everybody is a good at public speaking, and not everybody is good in front of crowds. We get that. But in that line of work, it certainly is an asset. It is. Uh, there once was a time when you could have, uh, you know, prime ministers, I suppose, uh, the Lester Pearsons, the Mackenzie Kings, uh, who, who people were in no way comfortable in front of a microphone or a camera. But uh, it's just not possible in this area. You have to be a, a strong, positive communicator. Uh, clear in in what you're saying, and uh, if and and there's no question that for whatever reason, whether sheer the reason he hesitated on some of these social issues could be because he harbored some of those uh, thoughts. Uh, it's hard to say, but he was certainly uncomfortable. There were times during that campaign when you wonder why he just didn't answer the question and 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 move it aside, and to have that sort of lingering. To have that not addressed prior to the campaign even starting, uh, I think was a was a problem for him that he never really overcame. Whereas this guy, uh, two in the morning, um, knowing that even if nobody was watching it live, it would get played back. Uh, he just uh, really, uh, you know, he, he was fresh for two in in the morning. He he really was on top of his game in terms of the, you know, the positivity of his message and. That's what, uh, you know, Canadians are going to need to hear a positive message because uh, everybody has just no idea what's going to happen after all of these uh, benefits run out. And, and there's going to be a, a real question about, uh, you know, from a fiscal standpoint, uh, 
you know, there's a lot of people that are wondering if we're ever going to regain any sense of fiscal responsibility or whether it's just constant deficits and let the next generation worry about it. It is. It's a very, very troubling time, so I think everybody involved. There, there were two elements to, to, to O'Toole as a leader, though. Uh, O'Toole as the leader of the Conservative Party and O'Toole as the opposition leader. I, I want to set the parliamentary stuff aside for just a second and talk about Aaron O'Toole as the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, you mentioned uh, that he uh, has apparently gone on record now and, and made it aware to everybody that he's not going to kowtow to some of the extreme right-wing people, some of whom, of course, ran for the leadership themselves. Uh, but that element is still there within that party, and it's uh, it's it's been a thorn in the side for some leaders. Your, your point's well taken. Stephen Harper, a lot of people thought was going to kowtow to that and, and gravitate. He didn't. Uh, he just certainly didn't govern from the middle, but he governed a little closer to the middle than a lot of people in the Conservative Party wanted him to. And every time those extremists uh, started to raise their heads, he pretty much swatted them back and said, "I'm the leader. I'm, I, you know, it's not happening." Uh, O'Shea didn't have as much luck with that. How is O'Toole going to handle this? And because he got an example of within days of becoming leader, uh, when the uh, the tweet from uh, Carrie Lynn Finley, a conservative MP, surfaced, uh, which basically was categorized as, a, as an anti-Semitic remark, uh, and uh, O'Toole tried to address this and basically said that the Conservative Party supports the uh, the Jewish uh, Federation and 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 the Jewish etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but he didn't condemn the MP himself, herself rather. Uh, did that go well for him? Well, probably not, but that's that is going to be a problem. Um the you know, the the social conservatives really have a choice. They can they can vote conservative and be marginalized or they can start their own party, which is kind of what happened 20 years ago. Yeah, that's that's the Preston Manning experience. Yeah. Uh so so really uh, I I see no reason why he needs to kowtow to them. On the other hand, uh, in a democracy, there are going to be these eruptions from time to time with uh, with backbenchers that occupy, uh, you know, the you know the more fringy part of the social spectrum, and I I don't know how he's going to handle it. I I I think if, you know he he certainly needs to condemn the notion uh, that is being expressed. Um, but uh, we we also live in a democracy, and there there are people that are a little concerned that we've gone so far into political correctness that unpopular views are simply not expressible. Now, racist views are quite another matter, but uh, there's a there's a whole range of unpopular views that uh, uh, that people feel are are being unnecessarily suppressed. So. We'll have to see. It's 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 been a tough act uh, for conservative leaders uh, from the beginning. Joe Clark wasn't around long enough to to know how he would exactly handle the issue. Um, certainly, Harper did a pretty good job, uh, and the way he did it was establishing a a kind of a command and control uh, punishment squad that just uh, you know nobody ever saw him as warm and fuzzy. It, <laughs> you, you knew that uh, that he would and could crack the whip, and and so he did it th- through a, a more menacing kind of leadership. I this guy seems to have a, a warmer disposition and a, and seems to be a better communicator, frankly. So I see him being more in the mold of a Brian Mulroney, who could uh, you know kind of get the guys in a room or the women in the room and smooth things over, so to speak. Uh, more of a cajoler, more of a persuader. Uh, you know, and, and he's also got a business background, so he, he knows something about negotiating. He's got a, a, a really strong legal background, a business legal background, which should give him some ability to uh, to be persuasive. 
One of the classic stories about Harper, and it goes back to his first term in government, was uh, MP Garth Turner, who was, of course, a financial writer and analyst for years before he got into politics, and he was in that first wave of the Harper government. But he was critical of the government. You know, I don't think they're doing this right, do that. He, he wrote in his book, he says, I came into work one day and found my office had been moved bit down in the basement beside the boiler room, uh, okay. which I think was sending a message that uh, you're not on the team anymore, buddy. So uh, you're right, Mr. Harper was, was you know, not problem. It, it, it didn't hesitate to, to make sure that people people got the message that he was the guy that was in charge and it's going to be interesting you're right social media has made this much harder for just about everybody because it's this is not just a conservative problem uh liberals ndps i mean backbenchers as long as they've got their thumbs working are probably going to say stuff that's going to get the party in trouble well and and we've had social media long enough now that uh you know you can go back 20 years and dig things out so it's just so much easier to to find skeletons in the closet and uh, either as a public, we become a little more tolerant of that and, and kind of move out of the gotcha mode and, and start evaluating people for what they can do and, and what, what they are today. Or, uh, or we continue to wallow around in that sort of environment. And if we do, I, I just think uh, the quality of people that, that will present themselves for office are, is going to be a, on a downward spiral. Uh, let's talk about O'Toole, the parliamentarian. Uh, as you mentioned in your piece in the, in the uh, Bay Observer, John, he's not a rookie. He's, he's been there for some time, of course. Uh, well, he but was now he's affairs minister briefly yeah. uh, at the end of the Harper era, so he's, he's even been at the cabinet table. Exactly. Uh, he, in his first media conference, uh, said that uh, bringing down this government is not a priority for him. He wanted to, I think, a paraphrase, wait and see. We, we need to get. He said we need to get more information about the Weeb fiasco before we do this. Uh, I, that may have been the stated reason, but is, is the, the underlying reason that he thinks Canadians should get to know him a little bit more? Because the poll that you quoted in your piece today said that about a third of the people that were polled don't know much about or anything about this guy. Yeah, I think he benefits from from a, a delay. I think if you're going to if you're talking about an election happening soon, I think it's it would be more likely uh, Trudeau uh, pulling the plug in order to capitalize on uh, whatever um, bounce he's got from uh, all the money he's handed out over the last six months. Uh, I, I, and I suspect uh, since we had an election only uh, last year that money would be a problem, and you know. Uh, they, they depleted the, the piggy bank pretty much with the last election. So I think all the parties, frankly, uh, need a little time to recoup on that uh, on that front. But the Conservatives uh, generally are pretty strong when it comes to raising money. Um, you know, he's got a strong uh, caucus. He's got 121 seats. That's actually up three or four from the, the previous election. He's got 36 seats in Ontario. Um uh, None really in Toronto, but uh, very close to Toronto. All around 905, he's got he's got seats. He's he's got a uh, ten seats in Quebec, which is not great. But you know, considering uh, uh, you know the politics in that province and the resurgence of the bloc, he's uh, he's he's doing okay. So he's he's in a you know parliamentary wise, uh, he's in a good position. Um, I think you'll see some of these committees uh, cranking up. Uh, some of these investigative committees will probably get busy. Um, but uh, I, my guess is that all three parties right now are, are needing to rebuild their uh, funds. 
last election, uh, the one that Andrew Scheer expected to win, and I think everybody else expected him to win too, uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, missing the open net on the breakaway of the, the you know, the old Peter McKay analogy, etc. Uh, one of the things statistically that we found is, is many people consider the Conservatives under Scheer to be, first of all, a, a prairie, a western-oriented province, and rural. Uh, they did terribly, especially uh, east of Manitoba in major cities, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, you name it. Uh, does this, I don't want to say centrist approach, but the, a different approach by Aaron O'Toole uh, at least address that problem, if not uh, rectify it? I don't know if it rectifies it or not. I, I mean, I, I suspect it's going to be possibly a little bit of a challenge for him coming from uh, from Ontario, and, and he's, he's representing the riding where he was born and raised. He was born in Bowmanville, I believe. So, so I mean, he really is a Durham, region of Durham lad, um, so, so that's a little different. Um, my guess, though, is that he's been in the House of Commons now for uh, all, over 10 years, and uh, he certainly would get to know uh, all of his Western colleagues who always dominated the, the Conservative caucus. So I, I think his communication skills will, will carry him uh, very well uh, in, uh, in Western Canada. And, and you know, not to paraphrase Donald Trump, but, you know, what, what choice do they have? He's the leader. Uh, he was elected, uh, you know, uh, in a, you know, it wasn't a real tough race in the sense that he won on the third ballot. and wasn't like the Shiro uh, election where it went into numerous ballots. So, you know, he's he's got a big job in front of him, but I think he... Uh, he understands the job because he because of his parliamentary experience and even cabinet experience. Uh, they've they've got to be circling the calendar for the return to parliament, though. I, I think everybody. I mean, you know, it's one thing to be holding media conferences, which some people pay attention to, some not so much. Uh, especially now, you know, more concerned about getting the kids back to school and things of this nature. But uh, there's nothing like strapping the pads on and getting back into the uh, to the arena, which is what they're going to be doing in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I, I think everybody would like to see uh, Parliament uh, working again, um, and 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 working properly. Uh, sure, we understand that we can't be crowding three hundred odd people into a room, but uh, between what we've learned about uh, virtual meetings and uh, you know, sort of a combination of maybe having a, a certain number of live uh, attendees in the house and uh, couple that with some electronic uh, participation. I don't see any reason why we can't return to a full, regular parliament with question period, with uh, committees operating properly. Uh, it's been a long time now. It's been well over six months. And I, I, to some degree, I think you, you end up with a public that loses confidence when they don't see their government functioning the, the way they were used to seeing it function. I mean, the, the pandemic is not over. The emergency is not passed. But we've learned a lot about how to function during an emergency, and uh, I think it's important that Parliament get back to work in a in a proper, regular way. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. As always, John, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of people talking about uh, the government programs that have been put in place uh, to help people to deal with the COVID crisis, COVID-19 crisis. A lot of people lost their jobs or were laid off their jobs when the shutdown happened, of course, at which time the uh, Trudeau government came out with the CERB program, which was supposed to be a top-up for those people. Uh, it's come under a lot of criticism now from opposition parties, although they supported it at the time. 
And, uh, well, the Canadian public in general seems to have some concerns, but uh, the Prime Minister spoke about it this weekend and says, look, there have been some bumps, but we'll get it going. If you found yourself unable to work or your hours were cut back because of COVID-19, we provided financial support through the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy and the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And as Canadians transition back to EI benefits, we're going to make sure the EI program is more flexible and generous so you can get the help you need when you need it most. We will always support Canada's workers because together we can build a stronger country for everyone. Uh, not respecting that reassuring tone from the, uh, the Prime Minister, a uh, recent poll that was put out here by the Innovative Research Group suggests that almost half of Canadians support what the government has tried to do here is get people off of the SERB benefit. Uh, they've talked about rolling it into EI. I'm not so sure that's the best solution to it either. Uh, but, uh, well, there's some concern about uh, this, what this program is doing or not doing, as the case might be, and it seems to be a growing concern. I want to bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Marvin, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Glad to be with you. Happy day after Labor Day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's talk a little bit about CERB, and, and yep. as I mentioned, I think a lot of folks are aware why it was put in place. Uh, it has been fraught with controversy about people that are getting the money that didn't deserve it, uh, people that are not going to be able to pay it back. Uh, you know, it's a disincentive to go back to work, and on and on it goes. Is, is, is that what's sowing the seeds of discontent here among some people? Well, let's, let me start, if you don't mind, with the poll that was done. I want sure. to remind everybody that poll was done in the middle of August. And in the middle of August, we had gone through three waves of reopening our economy, each very successfully, meaning that we had the reopening and didn't see any big uptick in COVID cases. And so at that point, after we've been locked down for roughly five months, five and a half months, I think a general sentiment in the country was, let's, let's get back to normal. Let's get as close to normal as we can. Um, and and let's, you know, let's get those people working again. Let's reopen everything. Uh, I'd also note, as you correctly pointed out, there there was some concern that there were some people probably in minimum wage jobs um, and maybe not getting 35 hours a week or 40 hours a week, but maybe they were only getting 20 or 25 hours a week, and in a way they were better off on CERB than they would be going back to these part-time minimum wage jobs, and so maybe we are giving people a disincentive from going back to normal. However, I do want to temper that study from the middle of August with today. Uh, today is a very, very important day in this path of recovery of our economy. This is the day that elementary and secondary schools across the country open. Some opened in Quebec last week, but really today is the day that, broadly speaking, this is the biggest step in our recovery, those schools reopening. Not because they employ so many people, but having kids at home meant you needed to be at home, you didn't have your child care options, you didn't feel comfortable, and even now we're all holding our breath with this reopening that there will be no echo of COVID-19. This is why the government uh, in August extended the CERB to September 26th. This gives them roughly three weeks of data gathering to see if the schools are working, if there's no major uptick, then yes, I think this transition to EI is absolutely a smart, smart move. But we needed to get these schools back going before we could do that. So as much as people may have been tired about it, this move today is probably, oddly, maybe the most important step in getting our economy back to normal.
Well, and let's, uh, if we're going to get into the statistical end of it, and I think that's very germane to this conversation, uh, we're a lot more apprehensive about COVID than we were even in the middle of August. You say, I, because yes. I talked to a lot of people back in those days, Marvin, that were saying, uh, you know, we're, the worst is gone. You know, but it's, it's smooth sailing from here. We're going to start reopening more. Everything's going to be fine. Now we're starting to see an uptick. And, and Dr. Tam, of course, over the weekend, the, the Canadian uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, is very concerned about the steady increase in the number of new cases right now, and which is expected to get even more troubling, I guess, with the people going back to school. So uh, we're not out of the woods yet, and I think people are starting to come to that realization. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a fair comment. Now, let's, let's again, try to put this in some context. Uh, Dr. Tam is right. There has been an uptick, but it's not, it's not a necessarily a huge uptick, and it's nothing like we're seeing in the United States. Yeah, that's wordsmithing, isn't it, Marvin? This is an uptick, not a spike. Right. Well, or it's not out of control. The, the concern, of course, in Canada is that we're joined at the hip with the United States, and their media spills over into our market so easily. I know many people who get as much news from CNN as they get from CHCH, uh, and so we get bombarded with these stories coming out of the United States, 50,000 cases a day, 1,000 deaths a day. Well, in Canada, our deaths have been averaging six or seven you know it's really small and if they go to 12 that's an uptick but whoa 12 is still not a thousand a day but i want to say to those people who are worried i think it's a genuine fear sending these kids back to school i think by the way this is my guess we'll be okay but i am expecting there will be pockets i think the term we like to use is outbreaks and we'll see some schools have to close down for a week or two or three and send those kids home again. But I think broadly based, I think Saskatchewan will get through this well. I think New Brunswick will get through this well. Thunder Bay, Sudbury will probably get through this well. But in this GTA area where we have high-density population, I won't be shocked if there's an outbreak or two. I think that situation is still different than the United States. But who am I? I'm not an epidemiologist. I have no better insight into COVID as anybody else. And this is why the government has not ended CERB at this point. To shut it all down and then try to turn it back on would be too much, so instead they've extended it to the end of the month. Let's make sure, let's really make sure we're on the right side of this, and then we can transition those people to EI. And by the way, I was I'm not trying to be overly cynical when I said, you know, you know, blip as opposed to a spike and, and things of this nature. Uh, but even the terminology that uh, that the professionals are using uh, as we watched and tracked this in the early spring and into the summer uh, over the last couple of months, uh, they define outbreak as one case in, in a facility. Uh, you know, so when you hear that outbreak, you think, oh, my God, you know, now it could just be one person and it could be isolated. We don't know yet. But um, they're erring on the side of caution, which is always the, uh, the best thing to do in situations like this. But to, to get back to the government subsidy yep. programs, let's face it, there are some people in this country that don't think anybody should get handouts of any kind. Uh, and, and that's fine. But I think they're a very, very small minority. Uh, in hindsight, I don't know that the government had any choice but to do something like this. I know there were critics that were saying, well, it should have been a means test. Uh, that's probably not a bad idea uh, in hindsight. But at the time when people all of a sudden were cut off and had no money coming in, uh, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Right. Well, let's, let's go back. Let's take you back to, to March. Uh, the government policy said if we're going to lick this COVID-19, we've got to shut down the economy. And they declared great swaths of our economy as non-essential. We don't really need to have restaurants open. We don't really need to have retail stores open. These are things that many people rely on for their livelihood. So if the government is going to shut you down, what are you going to do for me? So this is where the CERB, the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit, was created. And 
Mr. Morneau, who was the finance minister at the time, and Mr. Trudeau said, we're going to err on the side of getting money into the hands of Canadians. Now, yes, we could have a six-page application, and we could then have bureaucrats go through those pages, and it could take you six weeks for your claim to be processed, but what are you going to do for cash during those six weeks because you haven't got a chance to work? And the concern was if they didn't get cash into your hand, then you were going to try to do some things under the table. You know, well, I'll work for cash over here, or I'll do this over here because I, I desperately need cash to keep my family safe. So they erred on the side of shoveling cash out the door. Inevitably, there were going to be problems with that. But let me put that in some context for you. To date, the CERB payments in Canada have amounted to roughly $73 billion, $73 billion. And by the government's estimates, $400 million was incorrectly paid to people. Now, that's not a trivial amount of money, but $400 million out of $73 billion, my God, that's less than a 1% error rate. 1% would be $730 million. And of the $400 million that went to wrong people or people who didn't qualify, or yes, maybe even some people who are trying to cheat the system, so far the government has had $200 million of the $400 million repaid to them. So, you know, I, I get the idea we'd like a perfect society where there are no errors, but I live uh, with, in business where there's always bureaucracy and there's always a few things that slip through the door. I actually think, given that we'd never had a program like this before, they had to create it, get the software written, get the application forms done, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, amazing that we were able to do this as fast as we were with the relatively small amount of error that we were. I give the government full marks for this. Well, and I know we're talking, and I'm glad you put that in context, less than 1% of money. And, and I'm not so sure that there are government programs at, at any level, federal or provincial, uh, that have that kind of a track record. The, the reality is, uh, no matter what program it is, Marvin, whether it's CERB, whether it's Ontario Disabilities, there's, there's always going to be somebody who's going to try to scam the system. That's that's just a given. I mean, there are people like that. I, I don't think there's very many of them, but it, it only takes a couple of cases like that to all of a sudden get publicity, and then everybody thinks, well, the program's a mess. Well, it wasn't really a mess, and it did actually probably keep a lot of people in their houses and keep groceries on the table for an awful lot of people. Yeah, I, I mean, you may remember this, Bill. You may not. That back in, I think it was April, I, I believe it was actually Pierre Polyev from the Conservative Party who released a situation where a, a person in a prison had somehow effectively applied for CERB and was getting CERB while they were serving their prison sentence. And clearly they had to falsify some records to do that. And no, it wasn't checked because, you know, again, when you're processing, I believe at the height of this, 10 million claimants for this, at the height of this, one or two are bound to slip through. So I don't tend to judge the programs by the exceptions to the rule. I look at the rule. Now today, or I shouldn't say today, at the end of August, uh, there were about 4 million people still claiming CERB. And the hope was, if we could keep the economy open and if we can get the schools going and, again, get some more people back into work, that by the end of this month, the number of people that we might have to move to EI could be around 2 million, 1.8 million, something like that. And even with that program, people may not remember that Christian Freeland, who's now our finance minister, announced that they were going to try to do a couple of things differently. So, for instance, because COVID hit us in February and March, some people who worked part-time hours had not accumulated enough hours to collect employment insurance. So the government was actually going to 
credit your account, if you will, with three quarters of the hours you needed to collect EI. If you add that to then what you actually did work, hopefully you would still qualify it. And, and again, it's a transition. We don't want to just drop these people uh, uh, into a hole, so to speak. Let's con- continue to support them until they can get back to normal. And, and why is that? I'd like to remind people, uh, as effective as our economy is, casinos have not reopened. You don't have the Tiger Cats playing the football game. So arena workers, stadium workers, they're not there. We just, just two weeks ago, had the Cineplex uh, complexes reopen and people who work in those cinemas. So we're still not, uh, not everyone who wants to work even has a job at this point. We're still working our way back to that normal. Well, yeah, whatever normal that's going to be. Right. And, and I mean, you know, these cases come up. I mean, because the, there are companion programs here. There's a CERB and then there's a the wage benefit program that the Prime Minister also talked about in his uh, comments over the weekend. And, and we've heard some stories anecdotally, uh, that some companies may actually be using that wage benefit sub, or program to actually pad their bottom line as opposed to actually helping the, their employees. And that may well be the case. Uh, but I was told by somebody who knows a little bit more about finances than I do, uh, that a lot of this stuff is going to come out in the rate when the, when people have to start filing their 2020 income tax next year, uh, because obviously there's going to be a declaration. They do track that money, which is why they know how there's been so much overpayment, and and you've mentioned half of it's already been overpaid. Uh, I'll, some more of that is going to get recovered when people have to start filing taxes, and they say, wait a second, you 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 didn't really need that, and you didn't deserve that, uh, so you want it back. Now that's what they said they were going to do. So. I guess, you know, time will tell if they're going to be that hard about it. But, I mean, you know, there are rules, and there are rules put in place. But I, I, I'm, I'm always concerned about people that just say, look, it's, it's a government handout. And uh, usually the, that kind of criticism comes from, first of all, opposition MPs, because that's their job. Uh, and secondly, a group of people that probably don't need the money anyway because they're in pretty good circumstance, maybe not as great as they could be, but certainly not in the dire circumstances of some of the people that we talk to uh, that were worried about making rent payments, putting groceries on the field, going to food banks now where they've never done this before. Uh, if you haven't walked a mile in those shoes, don't criticize. Well, Bill, we've not done something like this really ever in the history of Canada. If I take you back to 1917 and the Spanish flu or 1918, whichever year it was, you know, the government wasn't wasn't doing these kinds of things back then. So there was no playbook that I could pull off the shelf and say, okay, in case of pandemic, break glass, and here we go from here. So for good or bad, uh, Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet innovated. They tried to create a number of programs. I think the CERB has worked very well for what it was trying to do. Now, interestingly, the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, I think when the dust settles on that program, it is not going to have been the winner that we we had hoped it would be. Even if the government is prepared to pay 75% of somebody's wage, uh, companies have been very reluctant to keep people on the payroll that they do not have a full-time need for. And I think that's very interesting. The thinking was, okay, you don't need them all the time, but if you need them 25% of the time, we'll cover 75% of the wage, keep them on the payroll, and, and businesses uh, tended to take the short view and said, if I don't need them, I don't want them, there's the door, we'll talk to you in a few months. And so that program, uh, I, I'm not sure what went wrong. I'm not sure I would have been happy if they'd said, let's give you a 100% wage subsidy. Uh, there was lots of complaints that maybe 75% wasn't enough. Some people thought it was too much. So not every program has been a winner in this innovation circle, but the bottom line is um, our number of, of um, what do we call those things, bankruptcies, at this point we've not seen a big spike. We've not seen you know, huge numbers of people having to declare bankruptcy. We got people into the lifeboat, and we got them through to the other side. 
Uh, and now, correctly, it is time to start withdrawing some of those supports, getting people back on their own two feet. Uh, 1918, I'm told, for the Spanish flu. And, and, of course, as Donald Trump told us, it contributed to the end of World War II. So, yeah. I mean, you're a history buff, so I knew you knew that, but I just yes. wanted to pass that on. Marvin, always great to have you on. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Talk soon. You betcha. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.